The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. So we return this evening to the minor prophet of Hosea. You will you will find that in uh, the order of the canon that Hosea is the first of the minor, minor prophets that you come to right after Daniel. But as I told you last week, it seemed as though Hosea was a contemporary of Jonah and, and Amos and perhaps coming a bit, bit before Amos, maybe after Jonah. And that's why we have tried to chronologically peg this book right here where you, where you find it on our, the second one for us to tackle. And if you were here last week, you'll remember that um, Hosea is a, is a peculiar prophet. What God has called this man to do is not a task that anyone would raise their hand and sign up for. But you'll remember that all the prophets were at some level reluctant. They found themselves to be ill-equipped apart from the hand of God to do what he had called them to do. And they also found themselves reluctant because they knew that the task that he had called them to do was not going to always be a joyous one. While there would be times when God would send his prophet to speak a word of hope to his people, a word of encouragement, then more often than not, they were going to be speaking to dead men who would not respond. Worse than not responding, that many of the men who these prophets spoke to would hate their guts. They would seek to take their life. It's a healthy reminder for us that at times, the hatred of this world is the ultimate evidence that we are perhaps speaking God's truth. We cannot expect lost and dying men to rejoice at the hard truths of God's word, particularly when those words call us to repent, particularly when those words assure us that there is a day of judgment that is coming. And so we find this prophet to be peculiar, not in his, we're not told that he is hesitant to go in this task, but I can imagine he was when first hearing this word from God, but in the fact that he's going to act out much of this prophecy that God has put on his lips. Now, there were other prophets, men like Ezekiel, that God would work through and say, listen, a picture is going to speak to these people, perhaps louder than your words. They've gotten used to hearing the spoken word. So you're going to go to these people and you're going to act out a prophecy, a word of judgment mixed with a word of hope. Hosea was a prophet like this, speaking both to the southern um, kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel. He was speaking both a word of judgment followed by a word of hope with his life. You remember that God called this man called Hosea to go out and marry a faithless woman, this woman called Gomer. Now, we don't know from the text whether Gomer was already a harlot at the time that Hosea went out and found her to be his wife, or perhaps this was just her character. But what we do know for sure is he knew what he was getting into. He knew at very least the character of this woman, that she would not be faithful to their marriage vows. And I kind of half-heartedly wondered aloud last week, how did that conversation go? Ma'am, God has told me to go out and marry a harlot of a woman. You look like just such woman. Would you like to marry me? But he knew what he was getting into. He wasn't surprised at the fact that this woman would turn away from her wedding vows. And God had told this man that not only would he marry a woman, an unfaithful woman, but he would have children of whoredom. Now, we don't know whether this woman called Gomer brought some children into the marriage. It doesn't seem like that was the case. It seems as though what happened was they came together in this legitimate marriage and they bore a legitimate child. And the name of the first child was to be Jezreel, a reminder of the bloodshed and the violence that Israel had undergone. Then she bore 
another child, and they were to call him, excuse me, call her, no mercy. Then came the third child called, not my people. So as these children went out into the world, just by means of their name, they were speaking a judgment from God upon his people, a reminder of their violence and their bloodshed, a reminder that they were due no mercy from the hand of God because they themselves were a merciless people. They did not care for those that were desperate need of goodness and kindness from their hand. And then the fact that the very greatest gift that God could give a people, to be called his people, that he would now look to them and say, you are no longer my people. That this is the story of this man called Jose and his wife called Gomer. And so we can see these stories running parallel as this man's wife would go out and she would give herself over to other men who were not her husband. That you can see this commiseration, perhaps, between God and his prophet. As God said, yes, you know the sting of a faithless wife, so do I. I know what it's like to call someone to myself, to call this people as my bride to myself, only to have her give herself over to gods who are not gods. And so I found myself last week as we were working through the first chapter of Hosea, trying to, trying to strike this balance, because anytime we're talking about unfaithfulness within marriage, it's incredibly uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable because of some of the words, frankly, that the Bible uses here, but they're in the Bible, so we must use them. But it's uncomfortable because we know that anytime we're in a gathering like this, what do we have tonight? Maybe 25 people, 30 people? There's not a chance that there's not somebody here who has been affected by something like this. Either they've been the one who has cheated or they've been cheated on. And so it seems to me that what God is doing is he's, he's taking this unfortunately common occurrence and he's saying you won't know what it's like to be a god who has saved a people unto himself you won't know what it's like to be a god who in his own power has ransomed and rescued a people only to have them turn and go after foreign gods but you do know this either you yourself or someone you love you have walked through this with them and you know the sting you know the shame and the frustration and the fear and the anger and the pain of this and so we don't want to divide this so much that we make this only a spiritual conversation this was a real man's life and a real man's wife and God was using the weight of that pain to give us just a glimpse of this greater spiritual reality so if we skim right past that and just go straight to the spiritual we'll miss the relatability of the story but we can't just stop here and make this just a story about the God's expectation for faithfulness in marriage because that's not the ultimate point the ultimate point is our adultery, how the people of God continually turn their back and go after other gods, giving themselves over. But we can take solace in this fact that God knows what it's like to be a spouse with an unfaithful wife. And so in order to set that context, I think it's helpful for us to remember what God's ultimate design was for marriage. If we go back to the garden, we think about Adam and Eve being naked and, and transparent and giving themselves over to each other, coming together as, as one flesh. We're reminded that in the physical intimacy of marriage, we're seeing a picture of a greater spiritual, emotional, mental intimacy of a man and woman fully giving themselves over to each other, making something new, becoming one in Christ Jesus. This is the picture that's being painted for us here. Of course, pointing beyond just a man and a woman, pointing to Christ and his church. And if this is the picture then, then we can understand the dangers of playing around with such a thing, of treating such a thing lightly, either in the way that we enter into marriage, 
or the way that we hold the marriage that God has given us, the way that we treat something like physical intimacy because it's a shadow of something so much greater. So when we come to this story, it's easy for us perhaps to sympathize with Hosea. You feel bad for him, right? His wife's running off on him, maybe having children with men that aren't him. Now he's raising other men's children and he's, he's commanded by God to do this thing. And so it's easy for us to come through this and, and we, we feel the weight of this unfaithful wife. We sympathize with this man who has been betrayed and cheated upon. But we've got to remember that we're the gomers. Sometimes we'll come to Scripture and we'll get it twisted, and, and that's human nature, I suppose, that we always like to see ourselves as the hero. We always see ourselves as the one that have gotten the short end of the stick. But there's not a one of us that don't play the gomer in this picture. So, I don't think I'm, we're going to go through chapter 2 and 3 tonight. I don't think I'm going to read it all because it's a pretty lengthy, lengthy text, and um, Let's just work through it line by line. I think that's, think that's what's best. So turn with me, please. Hosea chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. You'll remember that after speaking this word of, of judgment upon the people of Israel, verse, or excuse me, chapter 1, it ended with a message of hope, that they would have people as numerous as the stars, that God wasn't going to wipe these people out forever, but that they would find hope in God. There would be a day of turning. And we see in verse 1 here in chapter 2, it picks up with that same kind of sense. It says here, say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. So we see almost a reversal of names from what God had just delivered back in chapter 1. Now we don't know who is it that is saying to their brothers and their sisters these things. Is this God telling Hosea to speak like this to his countrymen? Is this Hosea speaking? telling his children that they're to go out and speak this to the world we don't know but we see immediately that God is extending a message of hope I said that you will be called not my people that you will be called no mercy but I promise you that beyond this once this time of judgment has come there will be hope you will be my people and you will find an extension of mercy verse 2 plead with your mother plead for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Plead that she would put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. So it seems like this is a bit of a courtroom scene here. That he's calling out to his children. He's saying, now you speak to your mother. Almost like they're witnesses to this. But it doesn't seem to me that this is a divorce proceeding. It seems to me as though he is calling her to task for her adultery. As a matter of fact, it's obvious that he wants her back. What he's pleading with this woman to do is to turn away from this thing that will destroy her, to turn away from going after other men. He's saying, children, would you cry out to this? So that when he says, you are not my wife, he's not saying, you're not my wife because I sent you away. He's saying, you're not my wife because you ran away. You abandoned our covenant. You gave up on this marriage. Isaiah 50, verse 1, God says this. Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. That the picture isn't God sending his people away, even in their sin, even in their unfaithfulness. This wasn't God sending them away. This was his people running from him the people whom he had redeemed for the sake of his own glory. It was they who had been unfaithful. But again, the call here is that they would repent 
because they would repent and come back and find him to be a faithful king, find him to be a faithful husband even when they were not. Verse 3, now here comes the warning. He said, I'm calling you to put this thing away. Children, go say to your mother, put this unfaithfulness away and return. Lest, if you don't, we see as we work through this together pictures of, of law and gospel working together. The curse that comes from disobedience being laid out plainly before the people and yet the grace of God coming in right beside it. The grace of God even in our unfaithfulness. So right now he's saying these are the consequences for your unfaithfulness. There's, there's never been a man, there's never been a man that came to this word, there's never been a man that came and joined their life to a church that understood anything about the things of God that could ever look to him and say, you never warned me what would happen. You never cautioned me where my unfaithfulness would get me. So he's warning her here. Lest I strip her naked and make her as in the days she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. So we see here God's response to the unfaithfulness of the people. Now nakedness, of course, is a picture of shame. It's a picture of, of exposure and desperation. He's saying, I'm gonna strip her and reveal her shame, reveal her nakedness, and I'm gonna make her like a wilderness. I'm gonna take away all that she has. Of course, a parched land is a picture of something that hasn't received, what it's, hasn't received rain from above, hasn't received the sustenance that it needs in order to produce life. I'm gonna make her like a parched land, so much so that she will die. Now, as we look at this from the aspect of a husband and a wife, in those days, a husband had an obligation, a legal obligation to care for his wife. I would argue, of course, husbands continue to have this obligation. He who doesn't care for his own family is no better than the infidel. You must honor, your, honor God in the way that you care for your family. But there was this obligation. But because she had run away, he says, I no, no longer have obligation to care for you like this. I no longer have an obligation to clothe you and to feed you and to provide for you while you're running around playing the harlot. Therefore, I'm going to withhold all of these things. And we're reminded this is a right response from God. That sometimes it's easy whenever we see the mercy and grace of God swooping in on the backside of these prophecies to somehow then think that his anger on the front end is harsh or unwarranted or a thing that God has to repent of. And we know that that's not the case. We know that God is absolutely justified when he brings his judgment upon his people for their unfaithfulness. We're also reminded that we see something in this anger of God's love. That whenever God fights on behalf of his people, whenever God shows himself to be jealous on behalf of his people, he is evidencing even in this his love for us. That's the way we're built. You fight for the things that you care about. Apathy is hate, but fighting is love. I had many coaches over the years that would look at me and they would tell me, it's not when I'm yelling at you that you need to be concerned. It's when I stop yelling. When I stop yelling, it means I assume there's no better there, that you're not worth fighting for any longer. There's nothing better that I can get out of you. So the fact that God would fight on behalf of his people, the fact that he would be, he would be jealous on behalf of his people, this in and of itself, it's an evidence of his love. Verse four, upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. So it's, it can be confusing to try and figure out who's the mother and who are the children here, right? Is, is the mother 
corporate Israel and then the children are individuals within Israel? Is the mother the leadership, the spiritual leadership within Israel and then her children are the common folks? I, I don't really know, but I, I don't think we need to draw too harsh a division between the two because it's clear that they're both guilty before God. Because you might be tempted to say, why would you punish these children for their mom's unfaithfulness? How's that her fault? By the way, isn't that the argument behind why we say that there should be no provisions, there should be no exceptions with regards to the abolition of, a, of a abortion, even in cases when the father has acted shamefully in bringing about that child? Why should a child pay for the sins of his father? Yet we see here that they themselves are guilty, that they're following after the pattern of their mother. They're not just consequences of someone else's sin. They follow after them. By nature, they too are wild and unfaithful children. They're sons of disobedience, to use New New Testament language. In addition to this, we're reminded that we've got commandments from God that we're to watch out who we follow. We're to take care. You remember when Jesus was dealing with the religious leaders of his day? He continued to look to the crowd and he would say, these are blind men and they will lead you into a pit. You need to watch out. You need to be careful. You will answer for your own sins. They will answer for leading you astray. Whether it's a pastor, whether it's a prophet, whether it's a priest, whether it's whoever it is that you think that you are following after, they will answer to God if they have led you astray, but you too will answer for your own sins. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. I want you to see the the conscious decision on behalf of this woman. She didn't stumble into this. She didn't wake up one day and go, oh no, how did I end up here in another man's bed? This was a conscious decision. I will go after these men. And she knows the payment. You see this picture almost of this woman saying, I know what I'm worth. I am worth the flax and the oil and the drink and the wool and the bread and the water. And I believe that this man can provide for me well. I believe that this man can meet my needs. And it's an ultimate picture of the grass always being greener. Isn't that how practically within marriage we end up here? We allow the enemy to get in our head and convince us life would be better if only. That's why we have to take great care of the way in which we speak about our spouse and the way we think about our spouse. If we're not careful, we can allow these thoughts of just, he never, he never, he never. She never, she never, she never, or she always, she always, she always. Have a grumbling spirit of ingratitude towards God for the wife or the husband that he has given you or this building up of all the others around you, right? That man is only attractive to you because you don't have to live with him. And yet we see this spiritually playing out with us. Things would only be better if only. Verse six, therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she will seek them, but shall not find them. So we see the sovereign God of the universe saying, I'm going to hem up your paths. It's almost like he's dealing with a wild animal here is what I'm picturing. Any of you that have ever messed with livestock in this part of of the world you have, right? Or at least you've had a neighbor that's had a cow that continually gets out or, or a goat that continually gets out or even just a dog that continually gets out. And you come to your wits and you say, this is enough. I'm blocking their path, whatever it takes. I'm fixing the fences, I'm building a new hedge, I'm putting shot collars, whatever it takes, I'm not going to allow you to wander any longer. I'm tired of chasing you. I'm tired of the neighbor calling to say that you're in their yard. I'm tired of the trucks honking on the road because you're standing out there like a nimrod. We're done. So we see God doing something like this. And he says that I'm going to, 
I'm going to block your paths, and I'm going I'm I'm to pave the way with thorns. And I, I can't help but immediately think about the Garden of Eden, the way that everything that was once clearly laid out and perfect and pure immediately became difficult. So that path that you used to run down the road to your lovers, I'm going to block you from that. But what we see here is that instead of returning, so again, I'm, I'm picturing a stupid animal here, right? And they're running into a fence. That fence wasn't here. That fence wasn't here yesterday. Those thorns weren't here yesterday. That's the path I'd go to my boyfriend's house, and now I can't get through it anymore. And instead of coming to their senses and saying, surely I must return to the Lord. Surely this is his hand of restraint on my life. What does she do? She doubles down. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. I'm reminded of the prophet Jonah. You remember how the hand of God was against him. The hand of God was against him and all the men on that ship. And what do we see them do? They rode harder. They threw their cargo overboard, always seeking ways, never stopping to ask, could this be the hand of God restraining my evil? Could this be the goodness of God keeping me from running after that which will not satisfy? Instead, she doubled down. And again, I don't want to make too much of this from the practical marital standpoint, but you've seen this. You've seen 30 and 40 and 50-year-old women acting like little schoolgirls desperate to get to some boy. You've seen the grotesqueness of this. It's, it's a sad and pitiful, and I shouldn't keep saying women, men, but it's, Gomer's a woman. They, they lose their minds. And they, they, they abandon things that they once loved. And, and again, I say it's like a, like a middle schooler. It doesn't matter what walls you put up, not job, not children, not their church, not those who love them. They're going to plow through this and do whatever they can to get to that person. But beloved, that's a picture of us. There's something out there that promises to satisfy us. It looks beautiful the way that it's all made up, and it's sin. It's death. It's destruction. It's gods that are not gods. We become like little middle school girls obsessed we can't quit thinking about it we'll do anything we have to do to get to it and as God puts up these roadblocks we try to find new ways around instead of pausing calling time out and returning to him then she shall say I will go and return to my first husband for it was better for me then than now beloved this is not repentance God has put walls in her place she tried to go around them she has pursued after her lovers. She was not able to catch them. She was not able to get to them. So we see God's goodness in restraining her sin, restraining her ability to get to them. And at that point, finally, when she realizes, I guess the gig is up. I can't go do the thing that I want to do any longer. She says, well, I guess I'll return now. Things were better before than they were now. This is not repentance. It's what it looks like to use your husband or to use God as a means to an end. I pursued this man because by him I received flax and oil and drink and bread and water. If I can't get that any longer, I might as well go back and take what my husband offers me. I might as well turn back to God because things were better at least then. I ate better at home. But I ask you, how many people without chasing after, physically chasing after foreign gods, without abandoning the church, without giving up your religion, without abandoning your study or your confession of Christ as Lord, how many people in your heart have just settled because you said, you know what, I guess this is as good as it's going to get? You've not been drawn to Christ in love and trust. You don't delight in his good gifts. You don't enjoy worshiping with his people. It's just, you know what, I've tried what's out there, and it's not any better. 
verse 8. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain and the wine and the oil and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. It was God who had provided our every last need. It was her husband who had provided her every last need. And yet, what do we do? We attribute it to another. We attribute it to our own efforts. We attribute it to the luck of the draw. We attribute it to some other provision that we find in this world. Instead of turning back and going, I know all that I have comes from God. And this unfaithful woman, she not only attributed that which had come from God to her lover, she spent it on him. I told you last week that if we're not careful, we can fall in love with the things that God has given us instead of falling in love with God, and it can change our prayers so that we get to the point that we come to God, and all it is is gimme, 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 gimme. What do you got for me? Now, it's absolutely appropriate to pray for, I, I pray every week, every Wednesday night, every Sunday night. I pray for our general provision. God, would you, would you give us all that you desire for us to have to accomplish your purposes? You said that you would. I'm praying a prayer that can be prayed. I have absolute assurance that not a one of you, I can say this with absolute assurance, not a one of you is going to starve to death until it's time for you to die. God has numbered the days of your life before there were one. You're not going to die too soon. You're going to die right on time. So we can trust God that he will meet our provision until it's time to go home. But if we're not careful, we're going to only pray about the provision. We're going to only pray to God about the things that he can give us. And I compare that to me going to Amanda and saying, Amanda, can I borrow the keys to your truck? I got this girl and I want to take her out on a date. We're asking God to give us the things that we're giving our heart to that aren't him. That's what she's done. But now God's going to show her. He's much more than just a daddy warbucks. He's not just her sugar daddy. Therefore, verse 9, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. He's going to strip her of everything. And we, of course, see this playing out in the life of Israel and him sending them off into exile. You think about the promises that God had made to Abraham, that he was going to give him this mighty nation, this great name. He was going to send them into a land flowing with milk and honey with things that they had never built. Things like cisterns already hewn. And he's going to now strip that from them to where they had nothing. I am the one who has covered your nakedness. I am the one who has provided you the gold. I am the one who has given you the water. And now I'm going to strip this all away and I'm going to reveal just how little you have. Because you refuse to come to me and worship, because you refuse to be faithful to me, because you attribute to other people that which I have provided and waste it on them, I'm going to strip it all away and the world's going to see how naked and shameful and desperate and helpless you really are. Verse 10. Now we'll uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. So, it's almost as if he is, he is staring down Baal. It's almost as if what any good husband would do goes and looks her lover in the face and says, hands off. He's going to do this, though, by uncovering her lewdness, by showing her shame, by reminding not just her but him of her unfaithfulness. Again, the insanity of people that will, they will turn from their spouse they will cheat on their spouse. They will go to another who cheats on their spouse. And then they have the expectation that somehow the two of them will remain faithful. 
He's telling this one, you can't trust this woman. She has left me to come with you, and he's uncovering her lewdness. Now he says this phrase here, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. There, there's some other translations that say, and no one shall tear her from my hand. And so I don't know which is right. Is this, she's saying to the boy, he is saying, God is saying to the boyfriend, don't think you're going to rescue her from my punishment. Don't think you're going to be the hero that comes in, snatches her away, and protects her from my judgment. Or is this saying, she's mine, I'm taking her back, and you won't take her from me again. I don't know which one. Theologically, both of them seem to work, but grammatically, my Hebrew is nothing, so I don't know. Verse 11, and I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste to her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. And I will make, I will make them of forests, and the beasts of all the fields shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offering to them and adorned herself with her ring and her jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. In short, party time's over. She's been dressing up to go give herself over. And they had taken these feasts, these gifts from God to remember his faithfulness and calling them out of exile. His faithfulness in pointing forward to his return and the ultimate fulfillment to all of his promises. They had taken this and they had perverted it and they had twisted it because that's what sin does. Sin takes the good gifts of God and we turn it into something it was never designed to be. But that's what makes it so dangerous because it started off as something good. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, today's the day I destroy my life. Nobody wakes up and says, today's the day I'm going to start heroin. Never smoked a cigarette, but today we go to heroin. It's a slow, steady fade. We take that which is good, and we give ourselves over more and more to it. And God had been patient. He had waited patiently, meeting her every last need. Listen, her check kept hitting the, uh, her direct deposit kept hitting the account. She kept swiping the credit card, and it kept working as party time went on and on and on, as he faithfully waited, as he called out to her to turn, as he warned her what would happen, and that was over. So he says, because of these feast days of the Baals, I'm going to undo all of this. Your vineyards will become like a forest. The beasts will come and devour. Everything that you have chased after, it's going to turn to mist, a vapor, sand running through your fingers. You won't even be able to enjoy that any longer. But I remind you that this is a gift from God, that God always disciplines his children. If you can run like the devil and never feel any ounce of conviction, Never see God's restraining hand upon your life. You're in deep, deep danger. And we're going to hate that hand of discipline at times when it comes. Scripture calls us not to. Tells us do not despise the discipline of the Lord. We're going to hate it in the moment. But beloved, there will come a day when we look back and we say, I praise you that you didn't let me run forever. I praise you that you hemmed me in. I praise you that you took that which was done in darkness and you brought it to light so that brothers and sisters could come alongside me and walk with me. So now we see that her sins have caught up with her, and now the shift. Now the most beautiful love song, the most tender love song in all of the Bible. Now, I would remind you before we read this portion of the text that there's been no change in Hosea yet. She's still that same woman that was trying to get to her lover. She's still that same person that was accrediting everything that her husband had given her to somebody else, spending them on them. She was the one that would only return to him because, hey, I got nothing better to do. There's nothing happening out here. 
There's no turning of the heart yet from Hosea and yet from Gomer, excuse me. And yet we see these words. We see these words and we immediately recognize that all that God has done was done for her good. All these things that he had done, he had done as a good and faithful husband to bring her to this point. Verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. When he talks about taking her into the wilderness, of course, you can't help but immediately think about the exodus. I'm saying, let my people go. that They may come out and be with me, that they may worship me. He says, I want you to myself. I want you out of that place. I don't want you surrounded by all your other lovers. I don't want you surrounded by all these gods who are not gods. I want you to myself. Let's get away. Let's go away alone together. I'm going to bring you into the wilderness, and there I will provide for your needs. But not just will I provide for your needs, but he says he will speak tenderly to us. A more literal translation says that he will speak to our hearts. He says, listen, you've followed your own mind, your own thoughts long enough. You've followed after these lustful passions of your flesh long enough. I'm going to speak to you tenderly. I'm going to assure you that I still love you despite your sin. I knew who you were when I married you. Remember, Hosea knew that Gomer was an unfaithful woman, whether in practice or just in her, in her nature. I knew what I was getting into when I called you, and yet still I loved you. Verse 15, And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope, And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as in the time when she came up out of the land of Egypt. So if our attachment or our connection to the Exodus was not clear, it becomes even clearer now. He's saying this is the thing. I'm pointing back to that, up to this stage in redemptive history, the ultimate picture of God's saving work in the life of his people. And he's saying, I'll restore your fortunes. Now, if you think about what it takes to build a vineyard, we talked about this in Sunday school not long ago when we were talking about the unfaithful tenants. There's great work and great effort and great expense that goes into building a thing like this. And he says, I will give you your vineyard, and I will turn the Valley of Achor into a, into a door of hope. The Valley of Achor, that was the first place where Israel proved her unfaithfulness once they crossed over into the Promised Land. This is where Achan had rebelled against God. He had taken that which belonged to God. That was was meant to be set aside only to him, and he had buried it. And so now he's saying, I'll make this a place of hope. And he he says here at the time when you came out of the land of Egypt, that there's this, this picture as if as you work through the Psalms and you work through the prophets, you'll find oftentimes that the word of God speaks with very romantic terms about the faithfulness of Israel in her youth. We know, you go read through the Exodus, you know they weren't all that great back then either. And yet at this time there was some renewed vigor or something that at times we we saw this this pattern of them at least following after God as he led them faithfully through the wilderness but I can't help but as I I look through this talking about the days of their youth it's almost like a second honeymoon we're gonna go back to the love that we once had we're gonna go back to that time when you were so filled with thankfulness that I chose you amongst all the peoples of the earth that your heart will be devoted towards me verse 16 and in that day declares the Lord you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall not be remembered. I'm screaming, they shall be remembered by name no more. So I don't, I don't know what to do with this when he says, you shall no longer call me my husband, or you shall call me my husband, no longer shall you call me my Baal. In one aspect is he's saying, no longer will you speak to me the way you spoke to those others. No longer will you speak to me the way that you spoke to those gods who are not gods. 
Or is it just about wiping out the name of Baal? Because this name Baal, it can be used as husband in the Old Testament. These two names can, can be used almost synonymous. And, or, or perhaps is he saying, you're not going to approach me like you approached the Baals. You remember that when they approached the Baals, he always required something of them. They were always having to prop him up and to provide for his needs and to do something to try and earn his favor, that he would bring rain for their crops and provide for their sustenance. It's perhaps what he's saying is, I'm going to be a true husband, a husband that loves you because I've loved you, a husband that loves you because I've set my heart upon you, not a domineering and a harsh and a demanding husband that you're always having to win favor from. I don't really know, but he does say that I'm going to wipe this, the name of the Baals out completely. You're going to return to me as a husband a good and generous husband I can't help but think about the prodigal son who said I'll come home like a slave and what did his father say no you're my son he celebrated he rejoiced verse 18 and I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field the birds of the heavens and the creeping things on the ground and I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land and I will make you to lie down in safety that much that this would not just be a place of safety. No longer would this be a valley of trouble, but even more than that, it would be a place of absolute peace and paradise. I'm not going to read it because we're running way short on time, but go and read Isaiah 11, verses 6 through 9, where it talks about the lion laying with the lamb in a place where even all of the wild animals, they are brought into submission. We're immediately reminded that God's promise to Adam wasn't just a restoration of Eden. It was something even greater. Something that he had never even seen, a glorified people living in a new heavens and a new earth in perfect peace with their king. And he talks about abolishing the bow and the sword and war from the land. Of course, a picture that not only will the wilderness around us, not only will this world no longer be marked and stained by sin, but our relationships too will be healed. Because you remember that it wasn't just thorns that came up. It wasn't just death that arrived on the scene with the fall of man. It was disunity. The husband blaming his wife, the wife blaming the serpent, the husband and wife hiding from each other. He says, that's not going to be the case when I'm done with you. There'll be absolute peace and unity. And he says here that I will make you. Remember earlier it was, I will make you. I will strip you bare. All the things that he would do in judgment against this adulterous woman. And now he's saying that I will make you to lie down in safety. It's getting late and I don't think the kids are up for it, but I was going to ask one of them if they want to recite Psalm 23 here. Nobody, that's okay. Most of our kids got it. It's impressive, guys. It's impressive what a little ice cream will do. But it is our good shepherd. It is he who makes us to lie down. It is he who leads us. It is he who protects us. All the way along, we look up, and it is never us. It is always him. 19. And I will betroth you to me forever. I'll betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. Mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. So three times he uses this phrase, betrothed, and clearly he's trying to drive home a point. It's almost as though they're going to be re-engaged here. It's almost as though he's saying, we're going to start with a new foundation. And what is that foundation? It's going to be righteousness and justice and steadfast love and mercy. We're not, going to, we're not going to start off on the same foot that we once did with me marrying you, with me bringing you into my home, knowing that you're going to be an unfaithful wife. There's going to be a change in you, that the heart will change, that I will be the one to cause your heart to change. And you shall know the Lord. I have to believe that this is more than just the knowledge of the Lord, just an awareness of God, that this is something very intimate, 
Scripture says that Adam knew Eve and she bore him a son. I think within the confines or within the, the, the picture, the, the parallel that he's giving us of marriage, I think this has got to be pointed to a picture of true intimacy. That God will not keep us at a distance. You've seen that before whenever one spouse sins against the other and now they're sleeping on the couch. He says, no, I will welcome you to me. I will not withhold the best of what I have, the most intimate parts, the most secret parts of myself from you. I will give myself over to you completely. I will be your God and you will be my people. And in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer the grain and the wine and the oil and they shall answer Jezreel and I will sow her for myself in the land and I will have mercy on no mercy and I will say to my people, you are my people and he shall say, you are my God. We realize that this is a cosmic event, not just affecting two people, not even just affecting the people of Israel and their God, but that even the heavens will be spoken to and they will open up and they will bring forth their rain and season and the grain will grow. And he says that I will plant you there. This is a firmness. People that have been planted, people that have been sowed, they can't run any longer. He said, I'm going to plant you here firm and solid and strong and you will be the most blessed people in all the earth for I will be your God and you will be my people. I intended on doing chapter three, but I think we'll stop there. We'll come back next week and talk about how then this played out practically in the life of Hosea and Gomer. But three things to walk away with. Number one, I want you to see how God's jealousy, God's jealousy on behalf of his people is for our good. See, people can, when you're a church like ours and we focus so much on God's passion, God's zeal for his own glory. We talk about his jealousy for his name's sake and how all that he does, he does for the sake of his own glory. We can almost have this repulsion if we're not necessary because those type of traits in men are ugly. But the reason is because we are not the highest or the greatest or the most magnificent. God is. So that when God is jealous for his people, when God demands that we come to him with our whole heart, what he is demanding is that we find ultimate satisfaction. What he's demanding is that we don't settle for that which will not satisfy. So number one, that we see our good and God's jealousy. Number two, we see God's pursuit of his people. Gomer never came to her senses and returned home. As you will see when we get to chapter three, if my understanding of chapter three is correct, Hosea had to go out and purchase her at a great price. That's us. No one seeks for God. We seek for his provision. We go wander the roads long enough. We recognize there's nothing better out there. Look, the church is a bunch of nice people. We meet each other's needs. It's a happy group. Let's go there. No one seeks for God. God seeks for us. That he comes in at a great price. He purchases us to himself. And then number three, I want you to see the way that God's purchase, that God's provision, that God's pursuit of his people is what leads to our changed heart, not the other way around. Hosea's heart was not turned. Excuse me, Gomer's heart. Hosea should be a girl's name. I keep, I'm sure of it. Gomer's heart was not changed until Hosea went and bought her and brought her home and proved over and over and over again, even in your sin, I'm for you. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. I thank you for this day that you have given us. I thank you for this word that we have received. Father, I thank you for the I thank you for the babies in this room. A quiet church is a sad church. A quiet church is an unhealthy church. 
I thank you for babies and slurpees and noises and all the stuff coming from back there because it is a sign of health and your goodness. So, Father, I pray that this word would permeate their little hearts. If they understood just 1% of 1%, Father, would you cause us to find good soil in their little hearts and save them? And would you change us? Father, we love you, we trust you, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.